Men get together and they love to tell war stories, battles they've been through, successes they've had. I think women tend to get together more and talk about their relationships and their families, except when it comes to birth. Like birth is every mother's war story and you love to share them. Um, and I, I think it's great. And especially kids, I know you, kids are sticking in for the communion service today. And often a lot of you go, why in the world when adults get together, do they just sit around and talk? Like they don't run around, they don't play, they don't jump on top of couches, they just sit on the couches and talk. What in the world's up with that, huh? And kids, I know, especially as adults get older, we have more stories to tell, and they are more exciting to share. Plus, we don't have their same level of energy. I know we've been talking about that. If you could bottle up a kid's energy, how much you would love that. And I think we all know the power of stories, right? In the 5th century BC, so many, many, many millennia ago, there were things called rhapsodies. Rhapsodies, or stitchers of songs were people who would memorize long stories, like the Iliad, the Greek Iliad, and they would recount it to people in just like imagination-capturing ways, every word and drop. I think you and I know the blessing of a good story in a tough time where someone will tell you, oh yeah, and here's what I've been through, and you just feel like someone can relate to you, and you've probably also known the example of a bad story where someone has told you something and you're like, wow, what's the point then in going on? Stories are powerful. And as much as the Psalms are songs and they are theology, they're often also stories of things. And I want to try and convince those of you who have lots of stories, those of you who have experience, to make the effort to not just tell stories, but the right kind of stories that focus on God's faithfulness. That the central character of your story is not you, but God. And to those who are younger, especially the kids, I want to try and convince you to listen to these stories. They might not be the stories that everyone of one of your peers is talking about. They might not be a story that's made into a movie, but the stories are valuable. If you haven't already, please open up to Psalm 48 in your Bibles. Psalm 48, of course, comes after Psalm 47. It's in a context, it's actually after, starting with Psalm 42, is the second book of the Psalms. There's a slight change away from so many like war stories, sad stories of the first book, to more praising God stories. These, these are written by the sons of Korah. You can see it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And Often, you know, the best songs and the best theological statements are not written by a single person, by a group of people. This is written with a group together, uh, and they are praising God. Psalm 47 is reflecting on how Jesus, Yahweh at the time understood, but how we know Jesus is king over the whole world. Psalm 48 takes up that theme and says, if Jesus is king, if God is king, how can we remember that and how can we tell others about that, about his rule and reign? If you're taking notes, you can follow along. It's really simple. We got, we got two steps, the first half and the second half divided by the Selah in the middle. The first step 
is going to teach us about seeing God's greatness. The second step is going to teach us about proclaiming God's greatness, sharing it. So how do we, what are these two steps to pass God's greatness to the next generation? Again, outline for today, two steps to pass God's greatness to the next generation. Verses one through eight is up to that Selah, is step one, see God's greatness yourself. The first step to proclaiming to the next generation is you have to see God's greatness yourself. Read along with me, verses 1 through 8. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold... The kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 8, or 4 through 9, 4 through 8, yeah, 4 through 8, break it out. Verses 1 through 3 is first seeing God's splendor. They look and they see God's splendor, how great he is, saying, great is the Lord. I was asking people in preparation for this, if you were going to fill in the line, God is blank, what would you say? People that different things, God is loving, God is kind, God is omnipresent. It was was interesting to hear. The sons of Kor in this incident say, when we think about God being king, what do we realize? God is great. The word means remarkable. In his excellent book, Knowledge of the Holy, which is found in our library, and you can borrow it, A.W. Tozer says, What we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show no people has ever risen above their religion. And so when we think of his greatness, what brings praise, we must think of his otherliness. Because God cannot be fully comprehended. Let me give a brief example. For example, in Psalm 97, verse 2, it says, Cloud and thick darkness are all around him. God dwells in clouds and thick darkness. And yet in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 says, He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God dwells in both unapproachable darkness and light that is blinding. And I know we love to have analogies and connections. We want to imagine God like someone we know. We want to picture the Trinity like a three-leaf clover. We want to come up with these things because that's the reason we love stereotypes, right? We love to put someone in a group because it just makes sense of them. I can just explain this person because they're part of this group. But it doesn't work for people, and it definitely doesn't work for God. We have to say God is unlike anything else in existence. 
God is great. He is amazing. And that should put us in awe. That same God who terrifies his enemies should make us go, wow. The only right response to seeing this God is praise. God's greatness means he's praiseworthy. J.I. Packer, the great theologian of the 20th century, wrote, We should never forget, in any case, theology is for doxology. A truest expression of trust in a great God will always be worship. And it will always be proper worship to praise God for being far greater than we can ever know. If your theology doesn't lead you to worship, you're doing it wrong. And if you're struggling with worship and praising God, maybe you need to dig a little deeper into your understanding of how great God is. We need to have a theology of awe of God. But God's greatness isn't just held by him, it's spread by him. This, this is the amazingness of our God. He doesn't just hold on to himself and say, I'm great. He gives it out. Verse one, the end of verse 1 and 2, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. This mountain, which is Jerusalem, is not a wonder of the world because of its great architecture, though Solomon's temple was amazing, was a jewel of the earth at the time. Again, that parallel between, in verse 2, is it's beautiful in elevation because it's the city of the great king. It's not the King David's city, nor King Solomon's city, but Zion is the city of Yahweh, the king over all. Psalm 78, verse 68, says, He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. Remember, in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel reject God as their king. They don't want God as their king. They want a king like all the other nations. And that leads them into the difficulty of Saul. And of course, we even see David and Solomon do many of the bad things that kings did at the time. But the psalmists reflect, and David and Solomon knew, the fact that God had chosen Jerusalem meant he was still their king. He had not rejected them. Verse 3 shows how he makes that clear to them. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Citadels parallels with fortress, and so we know this word means a stronghold. There would be certain places in every city, you know, those of you who've watched the Lord of the Rings movies reflect on that, where there is a center part which is the strongest area where you can lock the doors. It's behind gate after gate. And if all else fails, you go in there and you will be protected and you can fight off the enemy from the spot. But the sons of Korah are reflecting and they're looking at Jerusalem and they're seeing the strongholds and they're like, it's not strong because of the mighty walls. It's not strong because of our army. It is strong because Yahweh has made himself known here. As Moses made clear during the time of the Exodus, as they were trying to leave as slaves, 
Exodus 14, 13. Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have to only be silent. Exodus 14, 13 through 14. Now these fortresses were necessary for Israel because Israel had enemies. See, see verse 4? They have a fortress for behold, something's happening. They see God's splendor in verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 8 is then see God's supremacy. How he is supreme, how he is greater than his enemies. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. Great nations are gathering against Israel. There are a couple times we read that happening in the history of Israel. For example, you can go back and read it, or we have some um, videos explaining this on our YouTube page. 2 Samuel chapter 10, the nations of Ammon and Syria rise up against David as he is king and try to conquer and destroy Israel. Or it could be a reference to Psalm 2, which is more of a poetic understanding. Psalm 2 verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel against Yahweh and against his anointed. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. But notice in your Bibles, look down at verse 5 and see how they are defeated by the power of God. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in a panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. So these nations see these strongholds. They see the power of God revealed, and they are dismayed. The word means to have physical pain of terror. So they run. That fear overtakes them like the pains of childbirth overtaking a woman. But think for a second, because it's really easy to read this and be like, yeah, that, that's the kind of victory we want. Um, but how close did they have to be to Jerusalem to see the strongholds of Jerusalem? Very close. What, what happened to all the cities between these foreign nations and Jerusalem for them to get that close? Well, we know from a historical example in the times of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a good king. Yet things did not always go well for him. In fact, the nations marched against him. We cannot forget Isaiah 36, verse 1 says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Isaiah 36, 1. Every single other city fell until they arrived at Jerusalem. And yet God worked a great miracle where they were all scattered and they ran back home. At times, we have to go through a great storm of difficulty to see the rainbow of God's salvation, right? This is not a promise of ease. Verse 7 kind of continues with this amazement because he says, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. You might notice, if you're reading closely and you think about it, there's a verb change here. In our English, it's changed from 
um, past tense. They saw, they are astonished, they were in panic. To now, verse 7 is, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. It, it's a slight change. This it goes from a past tense to a perfect tense verb. Basically, it's a marker in the Hebrew of going from not just this happened in the past, but this generally happens ongoing. And if you put your historical hats on for a second, you have to think about what that means, the ships of Tarshish. Because that would have made sense to them. We're like, oh yeah, um, you know, you might recall the place where Jonah went or tried to go to, but largely people agree that was just the farthest place he could get away from Nineveh. It's a far off town. We don't exactly know where it is. But throughout the Bible, we read about the ships of Tarshish being the greatest of ships. Second Chronicles 9.21, the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiran. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks to Israel. Like, these are the ships that hold the greatest treasures. So when the term shows up in the Bible, and especially in the prophets, it's often used to refer to seagoing vessels known as their greatest accomplishment in human endeavors. They had all the treasures of mankind. It was full of arrogance, grandeur, power. Think like the unsinkable Titanic. That, that was the idea of the ships of Tarshish. Perhaps it's not actually ships that come, were built in Tarshish or owned by Tarshish, but it's a type of ship that was used. And yet it says, Yahweh crushes them with the east wind. And this would have been a really big deal because in the ancient world, it was thought that there were many gods and each god was over your certain area. It's like, okay, Yahweh exists, but Yahweh is just the god of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the hills, so God is a god of the hill country. He, he doesn't know what's going on in other places in the world. He can't help you there. And in fact, the people of Israel were not a seafaring people. They didn't go onto onto the Mediterranean. Perhaps, you know, David had some really great strategies, which he did. He was able as a great military commander to defeat these people. But you know what they Israel could never do? Fight fight at sea. And so when nature turns against these ships, it shows Yahweh's power. Verse 8 then gets to the whole point of this reflection. It personalizes these stories. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. They had heard the mighty stories of God's power in history. They heard of the Exodus, but now they are seeing, we've seen God's power. But, but notice what it is they see. Right, what, what are they looking for? The place that God will establish forever. That God has kept this place together. It is God's presence which gives them strength, not the great castle, the great walls. It is God. Each one of you must be in a place to see God's power. And there's a great connection between 
the song we started with, our hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and the word Protestant. Not, we're, not, we're not Roman Catholics. We are Protestant believers. And it's thought that A Mighty Fortress was written and composed by Martin Luther. And we don't, he didn't write down when exactly he wrote it, but historians have kind of pieced together when it starts showing up in times and said it probably was written at around the time of the Diet of Spires in 1529. German speakers, don't critique me. Diet of Spires, um, I think, whatever. It's a meeting that happened. And we know that that hymn is filled with such confident words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. But this diet, this gathering, was taking place in 1529 because the emperor of Germany, under pressure from the pope and from the Roman Catholic majority, made a summons of all the princes of the nations of Germany, which were kind of loosely connected at that time, to make Lutheranism, which we would call biblical Christianity at the time, make it illegal in any Catholic district. So he's like, okay, we might allow a few of you people, but we are going to crush Protestantism in this nation. And so on April 19th, five princes and 14, 14 cities made a formal protest to the emperor saying, this is not okay. You cannot silence us. And the Protestant Reformation's success shows the truth of Luther's hymn, right? It wasn't crushed at the time. And yet, it was a very scary time. It took the threat of an enemy to see the glory of God's salvation, right? And we must learn to say like Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That Selah in your Bible is part of the inspired text. Binkay did such a good job. When we read that, we're supposed to stop and pause and ponder. How should I respond to this? And maybe you have some other ways. We could talk about those afterwards, but let me give a few suggestions of some responses we might have. One, for those of you who are growing up in church, who have grown up in church, remember that the stories of other people's faith is not good enough for you. You kids are greatly blessed to have parents who guide you. Some of you have been, your, your grandparents were believers. But being a church kid doesn't get you on a pass of God's judgment. Being a church kid is not enough for salvation. You have to have personal faith. You have to have personal confession of your sin and trust in God. Notice all friends, like everyone, I want us to think, what brings the people of God great joy is the defeat of God's enemies. And I can assume, knowing this room, knowing every room, there are some of you who still are God's enemies. Maybe not overtly, 
Um, maybe you're not doing anything that's, that's too bad, or you're not purposely fighting against God. Maybe it's just an apathy to God. Or, or it's often we break the first commandment in a way to say, not that I worship some other God, but I, I worship me as God. I want my way. And eventually, when we want things our way, we are going to bump up against God's ways. And that leads to the breaking of the other commandments as we hurt other people as well. We are all start off as God's enemies, dead in our sin. But you don't have to be God's enemy, right? That is the beauty of the Bible story, that though there are so many problems, God sent his son, Jesus, into the world. He sent the king to die for his subjects. He did everything he was supposed to. He never failed. He never sinned. Though he had the same temptations you and I did. And he was put up on a cross to die, not just by the hands of men, but by the hands of God, so that his, he would take the punishment that you and I deserve, right? And so we are no longer just his enemies. He actually adopts us into his family and makes us his children. We, who did the crime that killed God's son, are brought into the family of God. What, what hope that is when things don't go our way. How much more can we trust our Heavenly Father because He has given the greatest cost for us? So may we trust His wisdom. Well, for those of you who might, you might have ponderances, questions about that, it's good to ask questions about faith. I love it. I, my, my worst thing is I was just talking to a neighbor who said, I asked questions and no one would ever listen to my questions. That's wrong. Let's talk about them. Just talk to the people around you about that. Talk to um, one of the pastors, one of the elders, one of the leaders, anyone. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to trust Christ. For those of us who are God's people, this is probably an application of belief and trust, but we have to be willing to experience the pain of battle to see God's glory of salvation, right? Are you willing to see the hard times as an opportunity for God to work? But it's not just enough to see it ourselves. That's not all God wants. If God just wanted that, he'd be like, hey, see, you know, see it, save it, I'm going to heaven. But there's a second part to this psalm. Step two. Step one is see it ourselves. Step two is show God's greatness to others. Verses 9 through 14. Show God's greatness to others. Verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We have to be praising and proclaiming of God's greatness. Verses 9 through 11, join in praising God. The sons of Korah, 
lead others in thinking on God's steadfast love, and so they join in praising God. We are created beings, and when we receive the works of our Creator, we must reflect on Him. Augustine once wrote, the great church father, pastor, theologian said, Whenever we, when we think about God, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object. Our thoughts are inadequate to understand God. We are incapable of grasping him as he is. And yet scripture tells us to think about the Lord our God always. Specifically, you notice, look in your Bibles in verse 10. It's not just let him praise now. It's as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Theology should always lead to doxology. Right? We talked about that earlier. And John Piper has well stated that missions happens because worship doesn't. Missions, our support of missionaries abroad and our evangelism locally is motivated by wanting to see others join in the praise of God. Wanting to see others see God for who he truly is. It's not just like, man, you know, I want you to agree with me. No, it's I want you to see this great God that we have. Missions is motivated by a desire for others to be changed. And so he says, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. The people of Israel will praise God for his salvation. So we should praise God for every good work that he does. And that also moves us then to proclaiming God. Verses 12 through 14, join in proclaiming God. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We get to the command section. Uh, this is the point. Often when you're reading these, you're like, like oh, yes, uh, these good words. And, and you can stop and just reflect on part of it. But we can miss that the end of the psalm actually says, you who are listening, here's what you should do with this psalm. Here's what you should respond. God's word doesn't just sit there and say, I'm here to make you feel better. It's like, I'm here to tell you to do something as well. And so he says, as you sing, go around Jerusalem. Look at her strength. Look at her defenses that have pushed back the enemies of God. My wife was telling me about how on her um, last day in Jerusalem, she got to spend a semester in college living in Israel and taking classes in Israel and visiting all over Israel. And her last day of her time in Jerusalem, they read this psalm and they walked around the medieval walls because those walls were torn down and rebuilt during the medieval age and looking around at the different parts of it and reflecting on God's just legacy and history of Jerusalem. The very fact that Israel is still there today is a symbol of God's faithfulness. But notice what is the point of the viewing. 
Because I know oftentimes you might even have gone on a trip to Israel. I've gone on a trip to Israel. And you come back and go like, wow, this is so great. I, that was, it was so great for me. But it's not supposed to be just about you. You're supposed to do something with what you see. Tell the next generation. Let me give you very briefly a theology of parenting and grandparenting. Both physical parenting, like those who are actual descendants, and spiritual descendants. Like we, we need spiritual parents and grandparents as well because not everyone has believers right around them. And it's summarized in a very simple phrase. The responsibility is to pass on the truth of God to the next generation. Discipleship in general can be summed up in the phrase, pass on the truth of God to the next generation. That's why Ephesians 6 says, parents, fathers, bring up your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. When you read through the Bible, it actually does talk on a number of places, especially in the Psalms, about senior saints and what senior saints' purpose is supposed to be. I, I know we live in a world where, you know, you reach a certain age and it's like, I put you at the pasture, you're no good for anything. Um, but actually, God has a purpose. He says in Psalm 71, 18, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Psalm 71, 18. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 says, Take care. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Deuteronomy 4, 9. In his book, Wrinkled But Not Ruined, which is also available in our library if you want to borrow it. I think it's on the red little um, cart back there right now. Pastor Counselor Jay Adams reflects on the end of life and a lot of the frustrations that happen between generations at times. He says, if you don't like the way your generation is turning out, you can do something to change the generation to come. Tell them to do everything within their power to encourage them to do better than what they did by being more faithfully honoring to God in their lives. He says the older generation, whether listened to or not, has an obligation as well as an opportunity to affect the future for the sake of those to come. We have to say, as the psalmist does here, this is our God. He will guide us forever and ever, irregardless of whether people are listening. You have to become a proclaimer, even when there isn't obvious results. This, this can be seen in, in many ways. Like oftentimes we, we work and we work and we're like, where's, where's the satisfaction? Where are the answers? And there was a family I was reading about recently with a young man named Gabe. Gabe had severe autism. Um, he was not able to talk. His parents described his body motions as that of a drunken toddler. 
all the time. He could not control himself. And, and he seemed to only calm down and be happy when they stuck him in front of a television screen and played children's cartoons and, and shows all the time. And, and it just became so much of a burden. They basically just stopped talking. They stopped reading. They just sat him down in front of the TV and went about their life. In his te- teenage years, so after years of doing this, they took him to a, a physical therapist, occupational therapist. They started working with him, and they finally figured out a wireless keyboard system that he was able to mark out his thoughts, and Dave's voice was suddenly found. And you know what? He had been listening the whole time. He would later communicate, and it would be written down, I am addicted to screens, but they're nothing. I'd love more. There's nothing I'd love more than to have someone read to me all day long instead. He'd be listening this whole time. And so his encouragement to the reporter as she was talking to him was, tell parents, even if they seem like they're not listening, like they can't listen, don't give up. You do not know what is making it through. So how, how should we apply this? Now again, many ways, but perhaps I think one of the biggest challenges is our subject of what we talk about. You know, I, I know we all have theories about how someone should do their job, how government should be, how we should raise our kids, how you should deal with the pain or medication or whatever. And, and often, you know, those can be right and good, but they bump heads a little bit. We disagree about those sort of things. And, and maybe that's good. We can wrestle over them and say, hey, here's my opinion, here's your opinion. But we need to give a better story than just our opinions on all these things of life. We must give people God's guidance. I I think one of the challenges we're experiencing in America in the 21st century, as I talk to many people who've grown up in church, like, I, I don't know about you, but like a lot of my neighbors have grown up in Orange County churches over the years. And they were given really simple answers. Oh, just pray, and God will take care of things. Or, or just, you know, you just need purpose in your life. And a lot of them, I, I, a lot of my neighbors, they're not angry about God. They're just like, hey, you know, if God is comforting for you, that's all religion is for anyways. Just, just comfort, right? But no matter your age, Christian, your responsibility is to join in not just being people-focused, but in being God-focused in the praise and proclamation to the next generation of who God is and why he should be followed. God is amazing, right? If you don't feel that, then you need to dig deeper to understand and see his amazing, and then you need to tell people about that. Let that pepper your thoughts. Let that be part of your conversation. Yeah, sure, it's awkward at times because we have to bring it up. And you don't have to, you know, preach at someone. Like, this is preaching time, okay? And hopefully I think when I'm talking to you in person, I'm not preaching at you the same way, right? Like, you don't have to preach at them, but you can bring that up. Tell the stories of what God has done for you. Make him the main character. Speak about his greatness 
and even deal with the hard things. Like, hey, we prayed and prayed and prayed, and the answer we got was no, no, no. But you know what? Here's what I saw some good that came out of it. Or anything else you can think of. Then perhaps maybe you can, you know, again, come to me. We can talk about other ways. We've seen in this psalm two parts. We need to see the greatest beauty in the universe is God. The God who is unlike anything else. It is he who has saved us. And we have to have make that individually me. But then when we reflect on what God has done, we need to tell others. Whether they are believers or unbelievers, our mission is to speak of God. Care about the next generation. Care about what is going on in their life. Not just what, you know, the world is happening today. What politicians are doing to them. What leftists are doing to them. We need to care about their own sinful hearts. If you've been listening to the news, you may have heard that the CDC recently released a study that came out that said 57% of teen girls feel persistently sad and hopeless. One-third of them have committed, have considered suicide in 2021. A third of teenage girls in the United States considered suicide in 2021, which is up from 60% in 10 years ago. The blame in this report is falling a lot on social media and pressure and the difficulties of 2020, um, but they're actually painting it back and saying, actually, that goes back before all the lockdowns. It's going back to 2018, 2019, the rise of social media. And Ali Beth Stuckey, who is a writer uh, in World Opinions, I highly recommend World Opinions' website. They do magazine and it really addresses like issues going on today and how we should think biblically about them. In World Opinions, Ali Beth Stuckey writes, it's not just the overt message that girls are receiving via their phones that are dragging them into depression. It's the implicit message that all of them are carrying, which is that we are our own gods. A popular response to this new study will likely be, we need to teach girls how to love themselves more more self-care, more self-empowerment. But what if that's exactly what's killing them? She continues, teen girls today need what people of all time have needed. Purpose, joy, satisfaction that exists outside of themselves, namely in the God who created them. Parents can and should get their kids off social media, but the trends won't reverse until we reckon with the truth of God. I'd, again, love your thoughts in applying this psalm, but may I suggest two big ones. If you are younger and you haven't heard many of these stories, or maybe you're struggling and you're discouraged, look around at people who are here. Too often we have people just get sucked in, they find people who are just like them, and a lot of people are just like them on the internet who are struggling and not looking to those who say, I've seen God's goodness. Let me tell you and give you hope. Listen as they share the stories of God's goodness. And those of you who have stories to tell, maybe your own, or, or maybe you're just really good at reading a book, and you're like, I, 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 don't, I can't tell my own stories, but I, I can read a book. Would you be consider, would you consider and be willing to talk to the leaders 
about how you could give God-centered stories to our church and to our community. And we listen to the news and we're worried about what's happening all over the place, but can we put our hands and say, you know, here we have Sand Canyon, Irvine, Orange County. What can we do to encourage and tell the next generation about God? I'd love to start brainstorming ideas with you how we may do what this psalm commands. Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we repeat Pastor Yuri's prayer that he often says, may Irvine Community Church persist until you return, that you would allow us to be part of this passing along, that we might proclaim you to the next generation. Lord, I know many people here, they, they are longing to see your salvation, your power shown in their struggling. I pray you would allow them to see the trials are leading to that, that it is creating an opportunity to rely upon you. For those, Lord, who have seen your goodness and they feel like they've tried and there's no purpose, Lord, may you give us endurance to continue to share. And Lord, we pray that and we know you will, but we pray that another generation would come again and again, that the Great Commission would continue for the glory of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.